Joshua chapter 10. How many of you ever had to deal with a bully in school? Anybody? Well, a few of you have. And I was surprised to see some of the girls, ladies, that say you had to deal with a bully. But I remember back when I was in fifth grade, uh, there was a kid that I went to school with, and his dad was the uh, police chief in our city. And he was one of those kids that was kind of a smart aleck. And he thought that because his dad was the police chief that he could do anything that he wanted to. And included in anything he wanted to do was to terrorize me. Um, We lived about a block apart from one another and we traveled the same route to school every day. And he was one of only two fights that I ever had in school. So we met one day and we had a fight. And we uh, went for about 12 rounds, no knockouts or anything. And and uh, ne- neither one of us had a clear advantage, but I, very, I, I do very well remember that. And it's one of those times when you wish that you just had a big brother who would come along and just beat the living daylights out of some little kid. Well, in 1980, you, I don't know if you remember this movie, but there was a movie that came out called My Bodyguard. And in this movie, there was a, a, a kid in school who was always getting beat up, and he didn't have a big brother. And so uh, he went to the meanest, baddest kid in the school, and he hired him to be his bodyguard. And so whenever one of the kids came after him or was going to beat him up, he just called on his bodyguard, and this kid was bigger than anybody else, and he took care of things. Well, you might wonder, what in the world does that have to do with the book of Joshua and what I'm talking about tonight? Well, give me a minute, give me a little while, and we're going to tie things together here as we talk about the subject, Big Brother is Watching You. It's been a few weeks since we... Uh, talked about the people of Gibeon. If you remember, uh, Gibeon, uh, the Gibeonites were people who lived in Canaan, and uh, they pulled a trick on Joshua and the Israelites. Uh, they were afraid of Joshua and Israel. They'd, they'd heard about what uh, Israel had been able to do. They heard about Israel crossing the Red Sea, about killing these uh, kings that were on the other side of Jordan. Uh, they, they heard about and saw Israel cross the Jordan River. They saw them defeat Jericho. They saw them defeat Ai. And these Gibeonites who were inhabitants of Canaan, they knew that somewhere on Joshua's list would be their city. And he was coming to destroy them. And being an enemy of Joshua and Israel was not a good thing because every person that, or every country and every uh, group of people that Joshua and Israel went up against, they always defeated them and they always killed every every one of those people. So the Gibeonites decided they were going to fool Joshua. They were going to make him believe that they really didn't live in the land of Canaan, but rather they were from a far-off country and they were coming to make peace with Israel. And so you remember the story, they, they took old blankets and they put them on their donkeys. They put on old clothes and, and shoes that were worn out. They took some moldy bread and brought that with them. And that presented the picture that they had come from this far country. It had taken them months and months and months to get to where Joshua was. And so they weren't inhabitants of the land and it would be all right for Joshua to make a peace treaty with them. Well, Joshua found out too late what they were up to. They actually were Canaanites, but Joshua had already made a promise to them. He made a peace treaty with them, and Joshua was a man of his word, and he couldn't go back on that. And so what Israel did then was to make the Gibeonites uh, servants of Israel. And throughout the history of Israel, the Gibeonites, from that day forward, continue to serve the children of Israel. Well, that brings us to where we're going to read in the scriptures tonight. Uh, Gibeon has made a league with Joshua and with Israel. And the other city-states of Canaan 
uh, five of the kings of Canaan find out about this, and they're none too happy about it at all. They aren't pleased. And so they decide to go to war with Gibeon. Now, we're going to see what happened here, and we're going to make some applications of this story in Joshua chapter 10 for Christians today. So if you'll stand with me, please. We're looking at Joshua 10, and we're going to read the first 14 verses from Joshua chapter 10. Now, it came to pass when Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men there were mighty. Wherefore, Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their host, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them all along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And Lord, help us to make an application of this uh, story that will help us to help us better understand the great God that we serve. And really, we do have somebody who's watching over us. Bless in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Big Brother is watching you. Now, Joshua and Israel found themselves in a very strange situation because after uh, they made peace with Gibeon, they were in a place where they had to defend them. Now, here Warren Wiersbe writes uh, about this particular scripture. When you make agreements with the enemy... Expect to end up paying a price and having to defend them to protect yourself. 
And that's where Israel was. They'd made an agreement with Gibeon. And in order to protect their interest in the city of Gibeon, they had to go fight for them and to deliver them from these five kings who went to war with them. Now, on the other hand, uh, the, the Gibeons had made a very shrewd mood. They uh, move. Uh, they secured peace. They made peace with the one who had the power to destroy them. And in so doing, they had to learn to lean upon Joshua and Israel. And these were their new friends. And Joshua and Israel were sworn to defend them. And so, in effect, they became like Gibeon's new big brother. They were there to help them against all of these forces of Canaan that had come against them. And I think that there, there are some things that we can learn today uh, about what happened here in Gibeon, how we can apply the same thing that happened there to our lives today. Now, the first thing that I think that we can see from this story, that just as Gibeon, we need to make peace. Only, we need to make peace with God. Now, God is certainly the one who, who holds our welfare in our hands. Uh, God is the one who has the power to save us. He has the power to destroy us. There's not one of us who's able to stand against the power of God. Now, when every one of us are born and we come into this world, we come in as sinners. We come in against God. We are God's natural enemies. And we come into a world where there's this great conflict between the forces of good and evil. We've been talking about that on Wednesday night. I mean, the forces of Satan uh, fighting against the forces of God. And here we are, right in the middle of this battle. God has come to try to... He's going to restore the world to its pristine state before the devil defiled it. And here we are. We are Satan's allies. And we are trying to help that or keep that from happening. Now, unfortunately for us, we're on the wrong side. We're on the losing side. And eventually, God's going to win in this war. God will take no prisoners. His justice will always stand. Uh, His his, uh, uh, justice will be served. And so anyone who stands against God, sooner or later, they're going to have to face the eternal wrath of God in the fires of hell. And so what we need to do, we have to resign ourselves to the fact that we cannot win. We can't stand against God. And the only way that we can be saved from destruction is if we enter into a peace agreement with God. And when we do, we're going to find ourselves in the same shape that Gibeon's in. And I mean by that, that we're going to find ourselves in a hostile environment. Whenever you decide that you're going to make peace with God, then all of the other wor- rest of the world is going to be against you. All of these people that, that are still at war with God, they will be at war with you too. So what do we learn from this warfare? And what do we learn by choosing God's side and being on God's side? Well, the first thing I think we learn is that Christ is the only source of protection. Now, when Gibeon entered into this league with Joshua and made peace with Israel, they found out that they were the instant enemies of the rest of Canaan. And when the other uh, kings learned of Gibeon's defection to Israel, they became afraid. I mean, another of the great strongholds of Canaan had fallen. And so these kings got together and they made a pact that they were going to destroy Gibeon. Now, Gibeon, the word of God here says that they were a mighty people. They were a strong people. And yet against these five kings that gathered against them, they were totally helpless. And so the only place that they could go was to Joshua. And that's because Joshua and Israel had Jehovah God on their side. And no matter how formidable that the enemy was... Joshua and Israel had always been successful. They'd always proved to be more powerful and able to overcome. And that was true when they came out of Egypt. 
Egypt was a mighty dynasty at the time, had a mighty army. And yet, with God's help, they overcame them. When they got into Canaan, they overcame the flagship city uh, of Canaan. That was Jericho, the mightiest defended city in the whole land, and they defeated it. And then, uh, also with a minor hiccup at least, they were also able to defeat Ai. And so, no matter how many kings, it didn't make any difference how many Canaanites were allied against Israel... Israel would be the victor with God on their side. And so you see, when, when you become a believer in Jehovah God, you'll find out that you are helpless to fight against Satan. You can't do it. He has these myriads of angels that are out there. He has all the world that helps him. And there's no way you can overcome him. The only way that you'll be successful and to overcome Satan is if you have a big brother that's watching over you. And that's what Jesus Christ is. You're going to get the snot beat out of you every time when you try to fight the devil on your own. But Christ is our protector. Christ is the one who helps. So when you get in trouble, the thing for you to do is to go see Jesus. Go see your big brother. Now here's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 46, verse 1. He said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He wrote in the Psalms, verse 46, uh, the 46th Psalm, verses 6 and 7, the heathen rage. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So none of us, we don't, we don't need to suffer defeat. God's there. Christ is our big brother, and he won't let Satan harm you. One of the interesting aspects, I think, uh, when we read the Old Testament story, such things as this, it's really to see how God's wonderful plan and purpose for the world unfolds. When I was preaching on Rahab... I told you that there are some who, who uh, say that those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace, that we're afraid to go into the Old Testament to try to prove anything, and, and we can't find any support for our doctrine in the Old Testament. I don't have any fear of going to the Old Testament to prove this, because we see God's working around every single corner throughout the Old Testament. And here's one of the glorious aspects that I think we see of God's grace in this story. And that is that only God... Only God can move us from unbelief to belief. Now, if you think about this, what is it that made Gibeon different from all these other cities in Canaan? Why didn't the king of Jerusalem and the king of Hebron and the king of Lachish and these other kings, why didn't they see exactly the same things that the Gibeonites saw? Now, was there something about the Gibeonites? I mean, were they more intelligent than the others or... Or did they have some insight into this so that uh, they're the only ones who could figure out that they didn't have the power to win against Israel? And what was it that made Gibeon uh, decide that they would rather be carriers of wood or hewers of wood and carriers of water for Israel and to become uh, totally dependent upon them and to lose their independence? What is so peculiar about Gibeon that makes them decide these things and the rest of the kings of Canaan did not? Was there something different about them? Well, no, there wasn't. They did this because God was behind it. Now, Gibeon was just as dumbfounded as all the rest of the people in Canaan. And the only reason that they made this alliance with Israel is because God motivated it. Now, we're going to see that in just a minute, and I'll show you how that God motivated and what the purpose was. But there's only one reason that they made an agreement for their safety. There's only one reason why they found mercy at the hands of Joshua, and that's because God is a merciful God. 
And because God was showing the rest of the people in Canaan, even showing the heathens, that when they come to him and when they surrender to his will, God will be merciful and he'll save them alive. Now, Gibeon had no qualms at all about total surrender to Israel. And so they took these jobs that were blows to their pride. They became servants to Israel. Throughout their history, they were servants. And we look at that and and we think, well, how do people change from being self-absorbed and self-consumed and prideful to step down to take jobs like this where they cut wood for somebody and carry their water for them? How do you give up self? How do you give up independence? And how do you become totally dependent? Well, God is the one who changed them. Gibeon was undeserving. They told a lie to Joshua. They should have been killed for their deceit. But Joshua showed them mercy. And when he did, Joshua proved his name. You remember what it means? Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Well, friends, when you come to the realization that there is no hope for you, and the reason that you come to God is not because you're smarter than someone else, it's not because you have everything figured out, it's not because you have some insight that other people don't have, The only reason that you ever come to Christ is because God is the one who moves you. God moves you from unbelief into belief. The psalmist said in Psalm 110 verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Philippians 2.13, Paul said, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so it's God who moves you from unbelief to belief. And so there is no other reason by God, but God. So you can, you can stop uh, thinking that things happen by chance. You can stop thinking that, that uh, it's all up to you. I mean, God knew his people from before the foundation of the world. And it is no accident that Gibeon ended up serving the priest for Israel. And God had put them there and God preserved them. So I don't have any problem going to the Old Testament to see this. Now, others may have a happenstance God. They may have a God who finds things out when we find them out. Others have a God who worries and wrings his hands and tries to save people that he can't save. I have a God who's sovereign. I have a God who saves. He does what he wills. There is no puny man that thwarts the will of God. And so when God wants to save you, God will save you. You don't tell God what he can and what he can't do. Folks, I think it's time for Baptist people to start believing in a real God who's in control, a God who orders all things after the counsel of his will. And so Gibeon didn't call on Joshua by accident. It wasn't because they were smarter than others in Canaan. God showed mercy specifically to Gibeon. Well, what else do we learn here? Well, we also learn that peace with God brings persecution from the world. Now, no sooner had Gibeon made its peace, and these five kings of Canaan uh, uh, come, and, and they're ready to put the serious hurt on Gibeon. Now, an interesting thing about this is that before Joshua and the Israelites arrived in Canaan, these Canaanites were not friends with one another. They spent all their time warring with one another. They didn't make alliances with each other. They were fighting all of the time. But then when Gibeon decided they were going to make peace with Israel, then suddenly all these people who can't stand one another... They decide they're going to join up and they start cooperating to fight against Gibeon. Someone said, politics makes strange bedfellows. And here we see that 
the politics of Canaan was this. I mean, whatever it takes to destroy Israel, that's what we'll do. And so if it means that we have to get in bed with our former enemies, that's exactly what we'll do. Because we're going to get together to destroy the common enemy. Now, when you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, you'll, you'll find out that enemies start crawling out from under the woodwork. They come from everywhere. I mean, if you go home and tell your neighbor, or you tell somebody at work, Hey, I got saved today. You think your neighbor's going to slap you on the back and the people at work are going to say, well, that's a fine thing. That's good news. That's the best thing that I ever heard. They're not going to congratulate you. They won't slap you on the back. They don't have a cake for you and a party for you when you get saved. You ever work somewhere where somebody has a baby? I mean, they have a new baby and they come back to work and people have the streamers up and they throw a party and they pass the gifts around, cake and ice cream for everybody. Did you ever see that happen when somebody gets born again? I don't think you will. You go to work and you tell people that you've been born again. Don't expect to get a cake from them. Expect people to back off from you. Expect them to align themselves with one another, to whisper and talk against you because you're a Christian. Now, people of the world, uh, they're not happy when people get saved. Right then, they start their quest to make your life miserable. You know, I hear it from all the time from people right here in church. They tell me about how difficult it is to work out there in the world. They're saved and they have to deal with these people out there and work with these people that they're not interested at all in the things of God and they don't want you to be interested in God either. And so what do I have people ask me? People come to me all the time. Isn't there a job I can do in the church? I mean, can I get on a full-time work in the church? I mean, isn't there something I could do? Well, God doesn't need you full-time in the church. I mean, we got saved people here. The lost people are out there, and, and your work is your mission field. And so you may not be able to preach to people behind a pulpit. You don't get up in a pulpit to preach to people at work. But what you can do, you can live a Christian life before them. You can be a testimony before them. And you can win them by the way that you live. And so that's where God wants you to be. So... Only God can help you out of these situations. Only God can change people. You can't do anything about it. You just trust God, and it takes God's power to change people. And just know this. When you are persecuted, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So here's what we need to do. Make peace with God. And the second thing that we learn from this story is to use prayer as your ally. Now, in this chapter... Uh, we see here the last great miracle that we find in the book of Joshua. You know, I've often wondered, what is the greatest miracle in the book of Joshua? Crossing uh, the Jordan River, that was a miracle. Uh, God parted the waters, they walked across on dry ground. Uh, the walls of Jericho falling down, that was certainly a miracle. That was a big miracle. And, and here in this chapter, we read about uh, the sun standing still. That was a great miracle. But I tend really to believe that the greatest miracles in the book of Joshua are things like the salvation of Rahab. I mean, a Canaanite woman, someone who recognized God, that God spoke to her and saved her. I I tend to think it's a great miracle that the Gibeonites were saved, that that God allowed them to remain alive. And then to look at the history of Gibeon, how, how they became faithful people. And even when Israel later on turned against God and, and when they forsook God and they, and they worshiped false gods, yet Gibeon, there's no record of them ever forsaking Jehovah. And that amazes me. That's a miracle. But we do have something in this chapter that is a class A bona fide miracle, and that is 
when Joshua came to Gibeon's aid, he had an opportunity for a bold conquest. I mean, he had an opportunity here for months of work to be taken care of in a very short time. Now, if you really want to see the sovereign God at work, and this is what I was talking about a moment ago, if you want to see the sovereign God at work, you see how he brought all of these people all at one time to fight against Joshua. Under normal circumstances, uh, uh, the Canaanites would never band together. And Joshua, to fight them, he'd have to go ploddingly along, one city to the next city, to the next city, to the next city, until he finally conquered all of these cities or these five cities in Canaan. But by chance, is it by chance that these five kings get together and they show up on Joshua's doorstep all at one time? That's the providence of God. That's the sovereignty of God. And so now Joshua is able to destroy his enemy in one crushing blow on one single day. So here they are all at one time. So Joshua has the opportunity to take all of them out. So Gibeon calls, Joshua gets the army together, they go there to their aid, and Joshua put the hurt on those Canaanites. He chased them away, they fled before Joshua, they hightailed it into the hills, and God took out, or Joshua took out after them, and as he did, uh, God sent a hailstorm. And this was a hailstorm like you've never seen before, because the Bible says that there were more men that were killed in the hailstorm than Joshua actually killed with the sword. But that's just part of the miracle. The next part of the miracle is with all those hailstones falling, that there was not one Israelite that was killed by a hailstone. God took care of them. Well, the day was going on, and uh, Joshua was about to have the victory. He'd killed a great number of Canaanites. But there he sees an opportunity to completely obliterate his enemies here in one day. Now, the only problem is it's getting dark. Uh, Daylight's gone. Daylight's fading away, and, and... the enemy could escape from him. They can't see to fight, and so they could escape from under cover of darkness. So Joshua made an unprecedented move. Nobody ever did this before, but Joshua asked God to make the sun stand still. Now, Joshua needed more daylight, and and so God gave him 24 hours of daylight. He stopped the sun in its track. The sun stood there for another 24 hours. Daylight prevailed, and so Joshua was able to kill all of his enemies. Well, that was a miracle like nobody ever saw before. In Joshua's time, uh, the knowledge of, of how the solar system works was practically non-existent. And yet, those people thought it was a miracle. But here today, when we understand what had to take place for, for this miracle to happen, we see truly what a miracle it was. Now, we look at this and, and we think, well, this can't happen. I mean, the, the physical laws of nature can't allow it to happen. It's physically, astronomically, hypothetically, scientifically, totally impossible for this to happen. It can't be done. But here's what we learn from this part of the story, and that is all things are possible with God. Now, here's the really sad part of this. There are supposedly Bible-believing Christians. Now, forget about the atheists and forget about the skeptics. There are Bible-believing Christians who try to explain away this miracle. First of all, we know how the sun rises and sets, don't we? Most of us do, I hope. The sun doesn't really rise and set, does it? I mean, as, as far as, I mean, we say that the, 
that the sun is stationary. It doesn't rise and set. I mean, even though that the entire solar system is moving through space at thousands of miles per hour, per hour, yet to us, we say that the sun is stationary. The sun's not going anywhere. It's there. So what the earth does, it, it turns on its axis. It rotates. Every 24 hours, the earth completely rotates. And so when the sun stands still, it's not actually the sun standing still. It means that the earth has to stop rotating. Now, with 24 hours and when it's daylight on one side of the world and dark on the other, it just depends on which one is, is uh, uh, which side is exposed to the sun. And that's why we say that the sun rises and sets. It looks like to us that it is. So there's a huge problem with this. If the earth suddenly stopped spinning, would that be like suddenly stopping a car? The earth travels at the equator about 1,000 miles per hour at its rotation. Now, if you stop the earth from spinning like that, would that be like stopping a car at 1,000 miles per hour without coming to a sliding stop? What would happen if you did that? If you stopped the world all at one, once, if it happened right now, if you stopped the world from spinning, what would happen? I don't know. Will we get thrown against the walls here or get splattered uh, up against them? I don't know what would happen. But I know it wouldn't be good. And so people think, well, this can't happen. It's impossible. And so people try to explain away the miracle. Bible-believing Christians try to explain it away. And they propose other theories. Some say the earth didn't stop at all. God just lengthened the day by some other means. Uh, we know, for instance, that it, you know, it stays longer, uh, daylight longer at certain times of the year in, in Norway as opposed to Brazil, for instance. It stays light for a longer period of time. And so they think, well, maybe that's what happened, something akin to that. Some say, well, no, there, there must be some uh, special refractory powers of light. Maybe it was a mirage, whatever it was, but that just enabled the day to seem like it was longer. Then there are some people who say, well, no, uh, none of that happened. This is poetical language. Does it really make, mean that it, it happened at all? It didn't happen. It's just poetic language. And then others say that what it means is that Joshua just gained some relief from the heat of the day. Well, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, why do you try to explain away the miracle? Now, if you're an atheist and you're a skeptic, you know, an atheist, I understand why an atheist wouldn't believe it. An, an atheist is, is, doesn't have enough sense to know that the earth couldn't happen by chance anyway. And, and if it did, where did matter come from in the first place? They can't explain that. So I can understand why an atheist dismisses this. But why does a Bible-believing Christian try to take this miracle out of the Bible? Now, if God created the heavens and the earth, and the Scriptures say that all things are upheld by the power and the might of God, if it tells us that all things consist by Him, then isn't the one who created it all, wouldn't He have the power to, to control it as He sees fit? The one who makes all the laws, all the natural laws, couldn't the one who makes them suspend natural laws if he decided to do so? I think that he could. God can speak the word and he can suspend any natural law anytime that he wants to. And if he can't do that, then he's not God. Sometimes we, we think about things like, can God create a rock that he can't lift? Or can God, or what happens when an, when an irresistible force meets an unmovable object? And we just do not have the ability to think in the supernatural realm of God. And so we, just, we, we have to believe the miracle. This is the nature of God. If you could figure God out and you could figure out how this worked, then you would be God and not him. But this problem 
of disbelieving even one miracle in the Bible is bigger for a Christian than you can even imagine. Next, to deny one miracle is to deny them all. We get that? Or we deny one miracle is to deny them all. You see, if you pick out something from the Bible and you say, well, this can't be true. It can't be true. If you say that, then you don't have any basis to believe anything that's in the Bible. When you deny one miracle, then you need to be prepared to do away with the virgin birth. Be prepared to do away with the resurrection. Say that the feeding of the 5,000 was not possible. Jesus could not heal blind people or lame people. You just do away with all of the miracles. And so really, to deny one miracle is a shortcut to saying salvation is not possible. If there is no virgin birth, there's no sinless sacrifice. If there is no resurrection, God is dead. And when you deny anything that's supernatural, then men are still lost in their sins. And so, friends, either you believe that all the Bible is true, that it's infallible, it's inspired, it's the reserved word of God, or life is meaningless, and salvation is impossible, and all people are still lost in their sins. There's no hope for us if these miracles aren't true. So you just can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible that you want to believe and and, and which parts you want to leave in there or which ones you want to take out. You just can't toss out arbitrarily things that are in the Bible. And that's why I think that we need to forget about all these modern Bible translations and modern, uh, modern Bible versions that are out there because they've done this very thing. Now, if we did not have a reliable Bible when it was translated in English 400 years ago, then we do not have a reliable Bible today. There's no reason to believe that we would. If the manuscripts of the modern versions are better than what the King James Version is translated from, which is the Masoretic text and the, and the uh, Textus Receptus, if there's something better out there than that, then there's still something better out there than that. If the modern versions are true, there's still the possibility that there's something out there that we're still going to discover that's going to cast a different light on the Scripture and we can throw other things out of the Bible and the Bible be more radically changed even it was with the modern versions when they came out. So what do you believe? I believe God preserved His Word. All of the Bible is true. We have a reliable Bible in our hands. So this is a miracle that happened. And, and I believe that we can have confidence in exactly as we read it here in the King James Version that this is God's Word to English-speaking people. So we have a miracle-working God. And when you need a miracle... God's only a prayer away. We still have a, a God who conquers our enemies. He's still in the conquering business. He's still the God of this universe, and he still helps his people through the power of prayer today. Now, that leads me to the last point for the evening. Number three is to proclaim the victory. Make peace with God, use prayer as your ally, and proclaim the victory. And that's exactly what Joshua did. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to tell you what happened here. There, these five kings that joined forces against Joshua, turns out that they were really too chicken to fight all the way to the death. And so these five kings, when they saw the battle was going against them, they decided they were going to run away. So they fled, and what they did was they hid in a cave. Well, Joshua knew where they were hiding, but Joshua didn't go and get the kings out of the cave right then. Instead, he said, I want you fellows to go there and seal up the mouth of the cave, and we're going to come back and deal with those guys later. 
And so Joshua sent his army, and one by one, they went to all these different kings, to, to, their, to their places where they lived, to their cities, and they destroyed them all one by one, and anyone who would help them. Now, that's what they did with four of the cities. The fifth city they didn't destroy, and that's the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, Jerusalem was not completely conquered until hundreds of years later under David. But the other four, they completely destroyed them. And then after Joshua killed all those people, he returned to the cave where those kings were, and he brought the kings out of the cave. Then he gathered all the people around, and, and they put those kings down on the ground. And Joshua said to the captains of his army, he said, "'Come and put your feet on the necks of your enemies.'" And that was a humiliating gesture for those kings. And then Joshua said, the Lord is going to do this with all of the enemies that you fight. Let me give you two observations about this and we'll be done. Number one, God will humiliate his enemies. Now, right now, we live in a world that mocks God. People make fun of the Lord. People make fun of Bible-believing Christians. They look at these miracles that we're talking about here, and they say, well, that's just a bunch of baloney. You can't believe those things. You're a bunch of superstitious fools to believe things that are written in the Bible. And so they print their textbooks. They put them in our schools. They try to push God out. They push the theory of evolution, and they say, you're fools to believe in God. And so they shake their fingers in God's face. And as they do it, they defy God without fear. But one day that's going to change. It's not always going to be that way. And I also think, folks, that there are some Baptists that are going to be surprised about what God's going to do too. I mean, they've been thinking that God is puny and, and God answers to man. God, you can't do anything unless we let you do it. And they talk about God's sovereignty and really the whole time they make man sovereign. One day that's all going to be over with. Now, the, they all laughed at God. They all make fun of God. But here's what God says in Psalm 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So God is going to humiliate his enemies. Then the second thing that God will do is God will honor his eternal son. Now, I think about how Joshua's army uh, killed all of these enemies. And we don't have a record here of even one Israelite who lost his life. And do you know that the Bible teaches us that there is another day coming that when the armies of God are going to come to this earth and not one of God's soldiers is going to lose his life in the conflict. Now, way back before there was an Israel, before Moses ever came on the scene, before there was Abraham, before the flood even came, there was a man by the name of Enoch who prophesied of Christ's coming. Jude tells us about this. He says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this is an amazing thing. Way back before Christ ever came the first time. Enoch said, he's coming a second time. He's coming back a second time. And this time when he comes, he's coming with all the heavenly host. He'll have his people by his side. And Jesus will come to this earth to reign and to rule forever. And then do you know what the Bible says that God's going to do? The Bible says that God is going to exalt him. Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
I'm looking forward to that day. I hope you're looking forward to. I have something to look forward to because I have made peace with God. I've made peace with God and now I have the peace of God. The peace of God rules my heart. I know that no matter what happens in this life, that I can call on God. I can use prayer as my ally because I have a prayer answering God as my ally. And it's through him that I claim the victory. Friends, Canaan is symbolic of the victorious Christian life. And you just need to remember this. If you know Jesus, you have a big brother who's watching over you. You have somebody to take care of you and to be your protector. Never fear, because big brother is watching you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for Jesus Christ and that he is someone who cares and watches over us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a sovereign God, that you have all power. You do exactly what you want to do. So we read in the book of Daniel where it tells us there that you do what you do in the armies of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay your hand and say unto you, What doest thou? We ask you, Lord, that you might help us to understand the true ally that we have. God is on our side. Jesus Christ is our brother to help us. Bless in this time of invitation, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.